I hope we understand, or spend time thinking about at least, how incredibly blessed that we are in the way that God has designed the body of believers to work, the church to work. That, that we are a part of something larger than ourselves. That, that we don't have to struggle um, through life alone. We don't have to take on hardships alone. We don't have to take on even temptation alone. We don't have to take on the joys alone either. That there are those around that, that care and love us that are, are going in the same direction that we are that ultimately have the same desire to be pleasing to God. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Castaway. Oh, it's been a few years, I understand. It's, a, it's an older movie with Tom Hanks. You know Tom Hanks. Do you remember the, the premise of the movie? He works for FedEx, right? Which really doesn't have anything to do with today. But anyway, he works for FedEx in the movie. And he crashes on, a, on an island by himself. And spends the majority of the movie alone. Save for his friend Wilson. Right? If you remember the movie. And Wilson is who? Wilson is a volleyball. Okay? Think on that for a second. And then think about how sad you were when Wilson got lost, if you remember the movie. Because it was his only friend, and Tom Hanks is a well, good enough actor, that he actually made you feel a connection to a volleyball. Because he was so desperately alone. Now, if I was to say to you that my best friend is a volleyball, what would you think? That, that's kind of crazy. You would not be feeling the same emotions that you were for Wilson in that movie when it was lost. Because we, we have a grander opportunity than that. We are not alone. We are a body of believers. And so we gather today, we gather together to share together, to encourage one another, to uplift each other, to worship together. To remember Jesus together. And, and as much as our relationship with God is a very individual thing, that we have this connection between us and God, that we are at peace with God and no one else really controls our, our heart, we are collectively a body of believers. One body in many parts. And God has set forth in His Word that this is the way that it should be. I hope we understand the importance of it then and what it is and the value of encouraging one another the value of loving one another of teaching his word and learning his word from one another the value of being one body anytime I think that we struggle or fight against the way that God has created us we, we leave a foothold for Satan. And into anything, when we fight against what God's word has said, 
that this is how you were created, this is your directive, this is, this is what you should be learning or, and yearning for, we open ourselves up to, to so many attacks. And this is an important one, that God has created us to be as one, set apart from the world, to do His will. And that's pretty clear right from the beginning of creation, that that's what God wanted from us, right? And, and we get mixed up on that sometimes. The world tries to alter that sometimes. But that's what God wants from us, right? Is to be obedient. To follow Him. To do His, to do his will. When it came into the garden, Adam and Eve, and they're being tempted, what's one of the first things that they say? Do you remember? But God said, don't do this. Do not eat. You can eat from anything else in all the garden, but do not eat from the tree that is in the center of the garden. They, they understand, right, that God has given them a command. They, they understand obedience. They understand that that's what God desires from them. Ultimately, they, they disobey God, but they understood that that's what God desired. That it was important to follow along. Comes with a, it comes with a warning in the garden, doesn't it? It says you're not supposed to eat of that tree because if you do, you will, what? Surely die. And then the serpent comes along and, and he lies to them because he says to them, oh, God said that, but you won't surely die. God is trying to keep hidden from you what he knows you don't have. This wisdom that you should need. Do you remember what uh, the wisdom was? The knowledge of both what? Good and evil. What did they know already? They had walked and talked with God. What did they already know? Well, they already knew the first half of that. They already knew what was good. Because God had put them in a place that was perfect. He had walked with them and talked with them. He had been with them. So what was Satan really only offering? A bite of fruit and the knowledge of evil. It doesn't sound very appealing, does it? And yet package it in such a way to tempt them away from obedience. If you do this, you will surely die. There was a need then, from that time on, for something that would bring people back to God. And at the right time, God, God gives them that. And we, we, we know it, obviously, as the old law, we call it the Ten Commandments. Go into Exodus, Exodus chapter 19. Is there more to it than, than what we know as the Ten Commandments? What, what were the commandments given? If you can quote all ten, but aside from those ten, what was also given? Well, what happens after chapter 20? Through 21, 22, 23, all the way up to about 32. What has been given? Like almost the entirety of all those chapters are what? Yeah, the instructions on what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to live, how you're to interact with one another, what happens when this happens, what happens when that happens. 
And so, yeah, there's the ten, but, but what God wants is obedience in whole and in heart. He wants us not just to remember those ten specific laws and say, okay, as long as I, as long as I stay on the right side of those, I can do whatever else I want. And I don't even have to be connected in a heart to God. I don't even have to really desire to be pleasing to God as long as I stay on the right side of those ten. That's not what God is saying. Even though he was giving all of these instructions, he was giving them so that they would have a desire to stay close to God. In Exodus chapter 19, it says this. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. And after they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the Lord's all the words of the Lord, all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together. Okay? They all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. And then in the very next chapter, what happens? God says and says, and God spoke all these words. And it begins to unfold what God, how God wants them to live and what they're supposed to do. Now they've professed, right? That they're going to do everything that the Lord says. We're going to do everything the Lord wants us to do. So God had sent Moses to ask them, do you, essentially, do you want to be a part of this covenant with me? You will be my holy nation. You will be set apart. You will be my kingdom in the world, even though all the world is mine. All you have to do is be obedient and follow me. And their answer a resounding yes. We're going to follow you. And then he gives them, out of that, the commandments. What's leading up to this? What has just happened? Do you remember where they were previous to this? And where they're heading? Well, they were in Egypt before this, right? As slaves. And they're up out of Egypt. And where are they heading? Into the promised land. The land that God had says, this is your land, it will flow with milk and honey. And God is leading them, he's feeding them, he's guiding them. And he says, but this is how I want you to live. You will have these commandments, and you will follow me. Is that okay with you? Are you willing to do that? And we just read, yes, we are. So then you flip through and you say, okay, excellent. That's how they should live. That's how they wanted to live. They've chosen that. You go through all of uh, the next few chapters when it says that this is what you should live and all, all the rules. And then you get into chapter 32. Now Moses is essentially still on the mountain receiving the word from God. 
And God is still telling them, this is how you should live. He hasn't even got through all of the commands yet. And what happens? When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain. Okay, so this is a, a severe lack of patience because it hasn't been that long. They gathered around Aaron and said, come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. This, this is an unbelievable statement to me. Not that I don't believe it happened, but it's just mind-boggling. That God has sent the plagues upon Egypt. He has literally split the Red Sea in half so that these people could walk through on dry land. Have you ever walked where water was or is? What's that ground like at the bottom of a lake? It's kind of squishy, isn't it? And I wouldn't... In yeah, it's kind of gross. It gets me. So imagine you take the water out and begin to walk through that water that water was. What's the ground still going to be like? It's not going to be dry ground. It's going to be wet and soggy and gross. So the fact that they walked through on, on dry ground is amazing. And so here are these people, and they get to this point where God has been leading them and feeding them, and they say, come make us gods who will go before us. Because Moses is taking too long in talking to the God who created us. The God who has saved us and led us. And so we don't know what's happened to him. Make for us a God or gods. They are so quick to turn away, aren't they? And Aaron, who Moses comes down and goes, what have you done? Because just think about what you've done here for a second. Says, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. So he took what was handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioned it with a tool. And then he said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Wrap your brain around that. A golden calf who they had seen with their own eyes be formed out of gold that they had provided. Not miraculously made. Not in some fashion that they would be tricked into thinking that this calf had any kind of power. They could have watched it be formed with the material they provided. And Aaron says, and here is your God. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. After that they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. So quick to turn away. Before they even got the, the law. 
What's the response to this from God? Do you remember? God's initial response is what? That's it. I, I'm, I'm done with these guys, right? What does he say? Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bound down to it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. They are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. God's at the point of, of wanting to do what? That his anger is burning against him, that he's wanting to say, that's it, that's done, I'll start again with you, Moses. And yet, Moses cries out for his people. And we see two sides of God here. We see God's anger at sin, we see God's anger at their disobedience. He has been calling them to follow him, to, to love him, to be obedient to him. And he sees how displeasing it is to God when they turn away. Because he's ready just to be done with them. And yet when Moses cries out and asks, what does God do? He relents, right? Now, they're still punished for their sins. If you read later on, there is a, a punishment for their disobedience. But God relents in not, in not just ending it all and starting anew. We see uh, very clearly the, the physical nature of the old law. The sacrifices. The death that was required then so that they could be clean. And that, that builds and builds and builds. And some of those laws were twisted and turned. The teachers of the law kind of tried to define them in a way that was pleasing to them. But the old law was not set for an eternity. It was set for a purpose, right? It was set so that they would understand and know what it was to have this disobedience to God and what they needed to do to come back. But it was building toward the Messiah. Turn into Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 53. The very beginning, we get this, this picture. It says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up like a tender shoot. Like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. That's a... Probably not the description you put in a pamphlet if you're trying to get people to follow you. And yet that is the description of our Lord. 
the Messiah. Like a tender shoot. He grew up like a root out of dry ground. Why didn't Jesus come with power? I mean physical power where he was a king. To be able to sway thousands with just a simple word. Or with, or with beauty or majesty or this, this level of glory. Think about when Moses came down off the mountain. And they could hardly stand to look at him. That They made him, they made him cover his face because he had this, this amazing, you know, this glory from having been in the presence of God. Why, why didn't Jesus come with all of that? Wouldn't, wouldn't it have been simpler to stand before thousands and just command them to follow in his footsteps? To be obedient to God. Wouldn't it have been simpler? Wouldn't have thousands more have got on board? Maybe. Is there a difference between me telling you you should do something and you doing it because you want to? And me telling you you should do something and you doing it because I'm forcing you? Is there a difference there? If I tell you you have to do something and then I force you to do it, literally force you to do it, you could be rebelling the whole way. And you're thinking to yourself, I don't want to do this. In fact, I don't even like that you're making me do this, but I'll, I'll do it begrudgingly. And you, <laughs> you can see that in, in children, when you tell them to do something and they have to do it and they know they have to do it, but they give you that look like, I'm only doing this because I have to. If you weren't here, I would not be doing this. And you've heard a, a child give an apology, a really heartfelt, I'm sorry. And then you've probably heard a child say, I'm sorry, that didn't mean it at all. But they've done it, why? Go say sorry to your brother. All right. Sorry. Well, sorry, not sorry. I mean, you're not, you're not sorry. You did it because you had to. You were forced to. There was no commitment to it. There was no emotional connection to it. There was no heart behind that. So when God, when Jesus comes, and he doesn't have power, he doesn't have fame, he doesn't have wealth, he doesn't have majesty, he doesn't come with his glory, and he says, follow me, he says, follow the Lord, be obedient to God, those who chose to do it, chose to do it. He wanted us to understand what it is to do the Father's will. Not because he's forcing you to, because God still is not forcing you to. But because you desire to. Because, because you understand what it is to be close to God. To know his love for us. To know the importance of the Lord's will. That, that's why Jesus came. To fulfill the Lord's will, right? He went to the cross. Why? What does he say? When he's asking for any other way but that, what does he say? But not my will, but yours be done. He came to fulfill the will of the Lord. He wants us to have that same desire. To do the will of God. And out of that, 
because of that, because of his desire to do that, he bore the sins of many. You go to the end of Isaiah chapter 53. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus was the buildup of the old law, is the coming of Messiah, and Jesus is that. He suffered and he died. He took on sin and death so that the sins of the many could be placed on him, that he could take and make intercession for the transgressors of which we are a part, so that we who then came now at this point in history after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ could be a part of the covenant in which he has ushered in. And Jesus tells them, we, we read that from Luke in Luke chapter 22. He tells them that this is the new covenant. Of which we are now a part. That we get to be a part of the kingdom. We get to be a part of the body of believers. But we have to be a part of that covenant. What is a covenant? Do we understand what that is? In the old law, when, when Moses comes down and says, this is what God is offering, what do you have to do? He's offering you that you will be his kingdom, right? You will be established as holy nation. You have to be obedient to him. And they say, yes, we'll do everything that the Lord has said. They enter into that covenant. And they were God's holy people. Jesus, the Messiah, then comes and offers us this new covenant. Go into uh, 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 3. Starting in verse 7 it says, Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters of stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Do you understand what he's, what he's comparing here? He's comparing the old covenant, the old law with the new. And he says even the old, which brought about death, which really just pointed out their sin, which really just pointed out all the things they were doing wrong, and was just, as he says here, was engraved in letters on stone. It came with glory, even with the point where Moses, as it says, was so hard to look at that they made him cover himself. In comparison, the new has this glory, that which lasts. The glory of the new covenant, because it is once and for all, it will be eternal. That if we are in this new covenant, that we are his children. Therefore, verse 12, therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Do you have this hope? A couple weeks ago we talked about the idea of living with hope. 
that we live with this hope, this idea that we have an eternity with God, that the victory has been won, that we are a part of this new covenant. Do you have that hope? Yeah, we do. And we get to live with that hope. But what that hope should steer us toward is then a boldness in God, a boldness in Christ, a boldness of being led by the Spirit. That this is what this hope leads us to. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Does boldness, is boldness the contrast of meekness? we're called to be meek right so sometimes we think that that in order to be meek we should just you know be quiet not say anything we're, we're meek is boldness the opposite of meekness what let's get that out of our heads right now boldness is not contrary to meekness often people think of meekness in the world they think of meekness as weakness and meekness often takes more strength than just pure aggression. Because it's easy to act aggressively. Right? It's easy to just get angry and say, ah, whatever. That came out great. <laughs> it's like a cartoon character there. Anyway, that's not the opposite of boldness. Boldness is a sense of strength in adversity. Boldness is a willingness to stand when no one else does. Boldness is a sense of strength and shining a light in darkness. Boldness is not willing to relent on the truth. And all of those can be done with meekness and kindness and love. But because we have this hope, we should be very bold in sharing the word of God and living for God. Because it gives us freedom. I can't... uh, I honestly have a hard time imagining what life is like. And and being without the hope of God. You know, we, we have this freedom from our sins. Freedom from death. If we are be obedient to God... We need, to, we need to remember that. We need to be clinging to that. We know that it comes at a price. I want to read the, the last part of this, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 13, We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It's not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We need to be 
a people who are being transformed into his image. More and more like him. Clinging to the hope that we have. Clinging to the freedom that we have. Being more and more like him. Being transformed into his image. It says with ever increasing glory. Which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. There is glory in the new covenant. A glory that is everlasting. Because it is a kingdom that is everlasting. And yet, as with any covenant, there is a warning. The very beginning, when God said to Adam and Eve, you should not eat of the, of the tree, he said, if you do, what will happen? You will surely die. In the, in the Old Testament, we see that when they disobeyed God, when they turned away from God, what was the result? God brought demise to remind them, to bring them back, because they have become a part of this covenant with him. What is the, what is the part of the covenant that we are under now? Whether people give to, into it or not, whether people believe it or not, whether they give their lives to it or not, the covenant is this. You will either be washed clean with my son's blood and live, or you will reject his sacrifice, and there will be an eternity of death. That is the covenant. And again, just like the commandments, there's more to it than that, but that is, that is the covenant. And so there is a warning for all of us to not only become ushered into that covenant, but to stay in it and to give our lives to him. Do not, do not find yourself on that last day when your tongue confesses and your knee bows and you are giving an account of your life, do not find your, on yourself that day saying, just wait, God, give me a few more minutes. Because he is calling you now to be obedient, to respond in obedience, and to live life in obedience with hope and freedom and being transformed, as it says, into his image. I want to close by, by reading in 2 Corinthians, if you'd like to turn over there. Chapter 1 this time. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, we also, our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort. It produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm. Because we know that just as you share in our suffering, so also you share in our comfort.